Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Dallas Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snufflin. And uh, happy Halloween, everybody. And welcome to the final match of our Bride of Monster Bracket. This week, we'll be discussing 2016's Colossal, as well as 2019's Us. It's been an interesting bracket. Yeah, this is kind of the first sequel bracket we've done. And I think it worked out to kind of have the format from last year's Mm -hmm. down. Yeah, I also think it worked because it's a shorter bracket, so we didn't cover too much ground last time anyway. Mm-hmm. Really, now we have one complete bracket. What one last time around? Six cents. It went up against Shape of Water in the final round. I mean, honestly, we probably have a six cents go up against whatever wins here, but eh, it's fine. But why don't we go ahead and dive into the production side of these two films? Sure. What'd you learn? So... First very interesting thing is both of these films, their writer is also the director, which honestly we haven't seen too much of on the podcast before. At least when we get into production side of things, typically there's a specific director and a specific writer or two. But here they're, I don't want to say auteur because that that implies a level of shittiness that I don't want to put on either of these people. Right. And it's part of the whole like great man myth of Hollywood. Yeah. But there's definitely a cohesion of vision that goes along with having a writer-director as the same person here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> For Colossal, person is Nacho Vigalando. So his first short film, 7.35 in the Morning, came out in 2003. It was highly praised. It was actually nominated for an Oscar for live-action short film. So he kind of just bust out onto the scene with his first foray, was already nominated for an Oscar. It's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why this movie starts with an Oscar. <laughs> Vigalando also has a pretty solid horror pedigree. He wrote and directed segments for The ABCs of Death, The Profane Exhibit, and VHS Viral, all of which are horror anthologies. Mm-hmm. And then his English language debut film, Open Windows, is also kind of in that horror space. It's a techno thriller. And then last year, he wrote but did not direct a f- film titled Paradise Hills. Which, from the description, sounds like a dystopian sci-fi thriller version of Wild Child. That sounds amazing. It even stars Emma Roberts. <laughs> oh, well, that's less amazing, but... <laughs> Taking a look at his film history, especially his English language films, they tend to do really well on the festival circuit, but that has unfortunately not led to much commercial success. I kind of get it. It seems like he's going for like somewhat flashy statement movies, TM, and I can get how that wouldn't always be an easy fit. Especially since it goes for more of a horror vibe, and while topical horror is becoming a thing now, it's only very recently become a thing. Mm -hmm. Or rather, only recently become a genre that we have available on Netflix, as it were. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, horror is pretty much always a topical thing. There's no non-topical horror story. Mm -hmm. But I do also think that the way that he's portraying that horror is not very in line with what's currently popular, which Mm -hmm. is also probably one of the reasons that his films have not done super well commercially, unfortunately. But I loved Colossal, and I think the uh, amount of like disregard it's just been shown is really unfortunate. Like mm-hmm. it's it's a very solid film. Going over to our other film, Us, we also have a writer director in Jordan Peele, mm-hmm. also an Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. For this discussion, I'm definitely going to be focusing on his writing and director work as opposed to his acting, because otherwise we'll be here all day. Mm-hmm. He was a writer for Keanu which is the action comedy spoof of John Wick. Which is actually very fun. Mm-hmm. There's a, 
uh, spoilers, I guess. At the end, it's a cat instead of a dog, and literally the whole movie, and they go take it to a vet to make sure, and the vet's like, I do have some news for you, though. What? I took Piano to the vet. He has a rare disease. Oh, no. He's gonna be a kitten forever. And then wrote and also his directorial debut, Get Out, which he won an Oscar for Best Screenplay and was also nominated for Best Picture and Director. Mm-hmm. And is largely regarded as a flashpoint in terms of conversations about race and horror and topical issues and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Widely successful, very talked about within film criticism circles. And then, of course, he also wrote and directed Us. And then he also has two upcoming horror films, first of which is Wendell and Wilde a stop-motion animated film where he also voices one of the titular characters. And he also, in part, wrote Candyman, the sequel-slash-reboot of the 1992 film. I'm so excited for that. I should also point out, many people mistakenly also attribute him as the director of Candyman. That's actually Nia DaCosta, who co-wrote the screenplay with Peele. Same kind of thing is happening with him in Lovecraft Country, and we're not putting that evil on him. Because of the success of Get Out, he has been doing a lot of producing for a lot of Black-focused horror, Mm -hmm. which I I think is really neat, uh, kind of sharing the wealth, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But it has unfortunately overshadowed some of the creatives because everyone is familiar with the name Jordan Peele and not necessarily with these other creators. Yeah. That said, I appreciate him taking the wealth he's making and immediately returning to the community. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most interesting things about Peele is his pivot from comedy to horror. Pivot may also be not the best description since he's still doing comedic acting, writing, and producing for a few television shows. And there's also Key and Peel, a number of their skits had flashes of the horror stylings that he'd be known for later. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it will be essentially black characters reacting to things that you usually saw white characters reacting to, like aliens or demonic possession, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Are you getting this? Yeah, what is up? All right, let's go. I'm done. These are some racist motherfucking zombies. Why would you even lock the door? I mean, the window's broken and... (gasps) Oh! Oh, hell no. Hey, guys. Isn't this great? These racist zombies are leaving us alone. Come on, we having a party. And us and certain other stuff he's producing, like Lovecraft Country, have a lot of humor to them still, so... I do think that that comedy background is one of the reasons that Peel's horror is so suffused with social commentary, though. Coming from the comedy background, you have to have an understanding of the world around you. You have to have an understanding of social dynamics and things like that. And I think that has been a huge boon into making statements with his horror films. Mm -hmm. Why don't we go ahead and jump over to the cinematographers for these two films? Mm Mm-hmm. So for Colossal, we have Eric Kress, who is a Danish cinematographer. Unfortunately, I'm not all that familiar with most of his work since it isn't in English and a lot of it's like European TV. You didn't watch a lot of obscure Danish movies to get ready for this podcast? <laughs> I did not. But what I am familiar with is he was a cinematographer for the Swedish language Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, mm-hmm. Taken 3, and Flatliners. Did I see Flatliners? I'm pretty sure I saw Flatliners. It seems like something that you would watch. Let me check on that. There's, I feel like there's a similar premise that... 
Yeah, but looking at the work from both Vigalando and Cress, it makes sense why Colossal is structured the way it is. It's got that slow build of tension and those uneven power dynamics from the thrillers that they're both sort of known for. And they also incorporate those sci-fi elements. And I think it works incredibly well. I did not see Flatliners. I saw a movie that is functionally Flatliners, but with the serial numbers filed off. I need to see Flatliners that has Ellen Page in it. That's the kind of the reason that I thought you had seen it already is because, oh, it's a horror thriller movie with Ellen Page in it. Of course Jackson's seen this. Yeah, that's fair. And then jumping over to the cinematographer for us, we have Michael Gulakis. He started his career relatively recently. His first film credit is from 2011, only nine years ago. Which is weird. A lot of times we have this level of movie, we usually have a newest director, a newest writer, and a cinematographer who was there in 1841. <laughs> Yeah, typically when we're dealing with the finals of our brackets, it's cinematographers who've been around for a while. I helped invent the derogatype. <laughs> and then I went on to shoot The Wolfman yeah. 2010. But Galakis, his big break actually came from director of photography work on John Dies at the End, which I have actually seen before. <laughs> it is a very odd film, but I enjoyed it. I feel like I didn't like it, but I might have also just not been in the headspace for it. Yeah, you you definitely have to be completely willing to just go with it for that film to work. Mm -hmm. It's very kind of confusing and convoluted and wackadoo, but it is enjoyable. But looking not bad. It looked surprisingly good for how low budget it was. Mm -hmm. He then followed that up with It Follows a couple years later. Hell yeah. That movie's beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. He is also a frequent collaborator with M. Night Shyamalan, working on both Split and Glass, as well as the upcoming film Old. Unfortunate. I Wait, will... didn't, didn't M. Night Shyamalan already do a movie called Old, basically? I don't think so. He did a film about creepy old people. Yeah, Visit. Yeah. I don't know. I have no idea what Old is about. I really hope he's just doing going backwards through his movies. He's going to do Old, Round, Ghost, <laughs> Thick. Like, I don't want to have that association with M. Night Shyamalan hit him too heavily, because for the most part, I, I don't think the visuals are typically the problem with uh, M. Night Shyamalan films. No, they are a problem with The End of Glass, but it's more because they were written into a very silly corner. It's also, from what I hear, Bruce Willis was phoning it in for that, and so only wanted to work for like a couple days and so they had to get all of those shots in in a very short time frame Ooh, that's unfortunate i can't in good conscience blame him for those failings yeah for sure so yeah that's that's what i have for the like production side of things i think it is very interesting that both of the films that made it the final have the writer director combo well i think that makes sense for horror films a lot of times it- there's a certain personal nature to to fear, and having it be burst from the, the head of one person is usually a more effective way to tell a story. Mm-hmm. When you have like a very committee-written feel, it wants to be less messy, and I think horror is at its best when it's messy. Thinking back on it, I believe that both The Sixth Sense and uh, Shape of Water were also in the same position. Not tracks. Not tracks a lot. Auteur theory is bad, but also Kimmel Toro is the only good auteur. <laughs> He's the exception that proves the rule. Exactly. <laughs> One day, some brave creative will just strike him off the Toro's head with a nail and all the stories will come bursting out <laughs> free from his brain. And like, able to work on more than one project at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I-, I love you, Mr. Del Toro, but you have your fingers in too many pies. I 
I feel like someone could easily start a podcast where it's just like speculating on what that project might have been like if he actually finished it. Oh. <laughs> uh. uh. But speaking of finishing things, we need to compare Colossal and us. So where do we want to start? Last time we talked about the Alexa analog being called Ophelia mm-hmm. in us and trying to figure out what that meant, not going anywhere with it. Yeah. Uh, looked it up. Ophelia means one who serves or a servant. And so basically it's a servant who is refusing to help. Because they keep saying, <laughs> like, hey, servant, call the police. And it's like, playing, fuck the police, but NWA. Uh Wow, that is wonderful. That fits so neatly, and I'm glad that... Huh, I wonder if that's a thing, and it definitely was a thing. Yeah. Honestly, everything in these movies is a thing, and it's a delight to keep finding more. It's like playing Skyrim, where you're just finding more hidden gems. Speaking of the deeper cuts from us, throughout the film, there's a man holding a sign that says Jeremiah 1111. Mm-hmm. It is a Bible verse. Looking it up, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Mm. I'm missing this, like, part of the... I have no idea. I am not that familiar with... (laughs) You didn't read the whole Bible to prepare for this podcast? No. (laughs) I do have a study Bible at home, but I haven't touched it in years. That's fair. So, a a reasonably fitting quote. Mm -hmm. But also the kind of one that is generic enough to apply to basically anything. You could you could put a Colossal and it'd be fine. You could have Colossus, the X-Men, wearing that shirt and be fine. Yeah. It's held up by one of those doomsayers, like, the, you know, the end is nigh sort of thing. So it makes sense that there would be that quote and that there is an apocalypse in this film, so it, it all makes sense, but I don't think it's quite as deep as the Aphilia. Hmm. I don't know if there's an apocalypse. The, the film is reasonably vague about what happens at the end. Like, there's clearly carnage in the streets, lots of people being murdered, but I don't know. I'm not sure how bad it gets. I'm not sure how thorough it is. It seems to be just America, so I'm a very low-tier apocalypse. Mm-hmm. It is a probably major cultural shift, at least. But yeah, I, I agree, not quite as deep as I feel, and also maybe not quite as subtle, because it's being yeah. held up like that. Mm-hmm. What I do think is really interesting is... We see that man holding the sign at the beginning of the film before Adelaide and Red switch. And then when they're coming back to Santa Cruz, they see that same man being taken into an ambulance. Mm-hmm. Implying he might have been the first victim. Or at least one of the earliest ones. Mm-hmm. Then we see Jason heading to the bathroom and going past the House of Mirrors. We see, we see someone standing there. And if you pay attention, eventually it's revealed it's that man's doppelganger. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of the start of the Hands Across America line. So he's just been standing there for hours after he took out his counterpart. I think that's really solid foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. It's fun, it's creepy, and it makes sense later, but as far as you can tell, it's just a guy being weird uh, on the beach. I'm also sure that we do get a close-up of like his hand and there's like blood dripping down it. Yeah. It wants you to know that it, this is ominous. Mm-hmm. It's also pretty telling that no one has noticed that there's this guy covered in blood. Presumably they're just like, you know, he's on the beach, he's away from the rest of us, that's a better place than usual. He is also wearing like a coat covering up most of it. That's true. It does kind of play into the way in which the upper classes ignore the plight of the underprivileged. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm not, I don't think that this is something that we've talked about yet, but I love the lighting in Us. I think it is fantastic. 
obviously Jordan Peele knows who to get on board in order to light dark skin, but also just how dynamic it is. And we have a lot of scenes that occur at night in very dark spaces, but it's never at a point where we can't tell what's going on. It doesn't have that problem that something like Bright or Suicide Squad does where everything is just so dark and washed out. We can't really follow what's going on. Mm -hmm. There are a few scenes during the initial home invasion where it's a little hard to tell if you're like in a bright room or whatnot, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's fine. It's part of the chaotic nature of the story and it resolves pretty quickly into the living room scene then later the running around outside scene. So I'm not too concerned about it. Yeah. How unclear that scene is, it is also kind of putting the audience in the perspective of Adelaide and her family where they're not quite sure what's going on. Yeah. So I'm, I'm much more willing to forgive some of the inability to see during those types of scenes. Yeah. Same thing with like Alien. Like there's a number of scenes in Alien where it's almost impossible to tell what's going on, but that's kind of the point. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I'm going to judge Colossal a little bit more for lighting stuff because there's a few scenes in Soul where the monsters are a little bit underlit, it's a little hard to see what what they're looking at. Mm -hmm. It's not awful, but it's just enough that you can like bump that brightness by like, you know, 5% and fine. Mm Mm-hmm. I do think for Colossal, it's very interesting how very differently they treat the lighting for things happening in the United States versus things happening in Seoul. Because for the most part, there's not a whole lot of variety of lighting in those places. All of the lighting in Seoul is similar. All of the lighting in the U.S. portions of the film are similar. I think I caught a time called Maidenhead. Maidenhead? Okay. And I think that's interesting, but it does mean that unless we're kind of switching back and forth, we're not getting a whole lot of dynamism. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there is some dramatic shifts in the bar at night versus any time outside of the bar. Mm-hmm. But even then, a lot of those tend to be kind of the same generic warm lights that have a not very harsh glow on anybody, mm-hmm. as opposed to, say, having a lot of you know bright neons or bright fluorescents casting long shadows or whatever. Mm-hmm. It all kind of feels like someone's living room or someone's yard. Yeah, the lighting is very functional. Mm-hmm. But... I think it's very intentionally so. Like, mm-hmm. it's U.S. real versus Korea, hyper-real, unreal, subconscious, the, the shadow, whatever. Yeah, I also... Hey, both these movies are about doppelgangers. <laughs> I also think for Colossal, the very functional lighting is a distinct choice to make what's going on feel less dramatic and more real because the emotional abuse that's going on is very everyday. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the point the film is trying to make. Yeah. Oh, speaking of the abuse, if you're watching carefully, you can pick up on Oscar doing a lot of gaslighting on Anne Hathaway. Gloria, on Gloria, not Anne Hathaway, yeah. So, question. Do you think she actually agreed to work for him, or did he just tell her she did and she believed him? Because for those who haven't seen it recently, Oscar shows up the next morning to you know help Gloria wake up, and he's like... So, you don't remember anything we talked about last night, huh? I got really melodramatic, didn't I? Well, uh, told me that you weren't really on a vacation. That you've been looking for a job for a year. And Is there anything else? I told you that if you wanted to give me a hand at the bar, you're more than welcome. You know, make a little money while you were staying here. What did I say? <laughs> you said yes. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate not knowing clearly one way or the other mm-hmm. because A, we could blame that on Oscar being an abusive asshole, but we could also blame that on Gloria and her alcohol problem and her just irresponsibility. Yeah. 
It's a subtle thing that doesn't necessarily directly matter, but the fact that we don't know helps on a rewatch make it more clear that Oscar is being manipulative from the start. Mm -hmm. While we're talking about the bees, I think one of the most interesting scenes in the film is the slap. Mm -hmm. I think that is where Gloria begins to realize the abuse and is realizing that it's not just due to her irresponsibility and her drinking problem that it, it is Oscar intentionally doing things. Mm-hmm. And after the slap, that's when Oscar also begins being much more open with his abuse. Yeah. Uh, because he realizes that Gloria is fighting back and he has to up his game in order to quash her. Yeah. Oscar's nice at first because Gloria is just sort of going along with everything. She's not pushing back. So he doesn't feel like he has to. If you look at his relationships with all of the other people that he's close to, that's typically what happens. Like he's pretty nice and jovial with them. And then as soon as they push back against what he's saying or do something that he doesn't like, he immediately jumps on them Mm -hmm. and gets super aggressive. Yeah. Classic abuse dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. I just think the way that the film incorporates all of that is very, very good. Very good, very real, like we said. Yeah. And they do a good job of having Gloria slap him and the music swell and you think that he's going to fight back. And he does, but it's not in the direct, easy to understand way that we might expect. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a, that was a good way to handle it. That tension of like, what's he going to do? Oh, he's going to walk away. Oh, it's fine. Oh, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of interpersonal violence, I'm really glad that at no point do we see... Gabe fighting Adelaide's shadow. I think it would have been uncomfortable in a way that wouldn't be fun to see spousal violence happening that was brought up in conversation but never actually like manifest on screen. It would have been not fun to watch in the way that some of the other fights are. Mm-hmm. And I think specifically even when they're dealing with the other set of doppelgangers, there's never any violence from men to women. Mm-hmm. I think the worst of it is when we see Josh's doppelganger reach down to Kitty to help her up after his, her throat's been cut. Kitty like reaches up to him and then he pulls his hand away and like slicks his hair back in the very goofy way that he does. Mm-hmm. In a way that is very clearly a gag, but like it's a gag that's slowed down and made horrifying because so it just feels off and weird and it's so unsettling but in a very fun way. It's definitely a gag, but it's also just very cold and callous, and he's, to a certain extent, reveling in the violence that is happening. Mm-hmm. But even then, it's still more of a kind of uncomfortable, borderline surreal moment, as opposed to, like, actual direct violence. I really appreciate that about the movie. I think it's a very, like, a subtle move, hard notice and absence, but it's a slightly softer, kinder thing for the movie to do. Yeah. There's also very little violence from adults to children. Yes. There's Adelaide taking out one of the twins. Mm-hmm. But they're late teens. I yeah. honestly thought it was Kitty at first. So, mm-hmm. But with Pluto, Jason is the one who takes him out in that very strange retethering scene that we've talked about previously. Mm-hmm. And then same with uh, Zora taking out um, Umber. Yeah, I hadn't noticed the kids, but you're right. Like That is, again, a sort of kinder, softer thing. This film definitely has a lot of violence in it, but... Most of the violence isn't perpetrated by a person who has more physical power against someone who has less. Mm -hmm. And I I think that it was a very intentional choice. Mm -hmm. Because Jordan Peele is pretty good at figuring out how to talk about systemic horror and violence in ways that are constructive as opposed to directly painful. Mm -hmm. 
I will say though, in this watch through of us, I was kind of like, eh, I'm, I'm done with this. We can move on now. During the scene where Adelaide fights one of the twins, it felt kind of like a mini boss fight that I didn't know if it needed to be there. I get the part of it is like Jason seeing his mom kill someone and, ha- and him kind of waking up to who she really is the person, all that jazz. It, narratively, it matters, but I think it seemed more like we needed something there because there hadn't been enough tension in the last 10 minutes or whatever, so we needed to ramp it up again or something. I, I don't know. I, I think part of it is also just that big chunk of that part of the film is just dealing with doppelgangers. Like, first the family deals with their own, then they deal with the other families, and there's not a whole lot to break that up. It's all kind of samey. Like, the fights are different, and the fights are good, but there's not a whole lot of progressing the plot forward, and we still don't have a good idea of what exactly is going on yet. Right. And this is one of those cases of, ah, you thought you killed her, but she's not alive because she's horror scary thing. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I think there probably could have been something else with that three or four minutes to you know, move the plot along or give us some new information or whatever. Or even just like moved it slightly later and had something else to be a little bit different in between. Mm-hmm. Or revealed something of character in those scenes that we don't really get beyond the Adelaide's a fighter when mm-hmm. she's alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, honestly, if there was like some clue they picked up from those doppelgangers that led them to jump to some conclusion about what exactly is happening. Or how the tethering works. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is also that the family's just sort of waiting in the car for her. So it feels like the tension isn't quite there because the family is kind of just like, oh, well, she's taking a long time at the gas station, you mm-hmm. know? I think you'd kind of say the same about Zora taking on her clone with a car, but that scene has everybody in it, so we have a little bit more more energy, more, more momentum, a little more humor, and that kind of that works better. I think because they're back to back, I can, I compare them a lot. It's like okay, this one is like fun and engaging and dramatic, whereas this one is just like a fairly standard. We're both in a room fighting over some scissors kind of fight. To be fair, it does make sense though that Adelaide is separated from the family for her struggle because of the nature of. Her existence. Yeah, for sure. Maybe that's it's possibly an allusion to that, that Adelaide is different than all of the others in the family. Yeah. I think it's all thematically fine. It's just like for a, I don't know, film pacing sense. Yeah, definitely agree with you that that part of the film has a little bit of pacing troubles. Mm-hmm. It's relatively minor. Mm-hmm. Like maybe if both of the twins had been alive and Adelaide had to fight them both using some like kind of dance moves that could have been fun. And maybe if they got Ophelia doing a new song to kind of break it up a little bit. I do think that if we got a little bit more ballet from Adelaide, that would have been very interesting. Mm-hmm. Of the various types of dance, ballet is probably one that is not one of the most effective in combat. <laughs> That's true. And we already have the best ballet-based horror movie uh, already exists. So. Black Swan? Yes, that too. <laughs> okay, what one were you thinking of? Yeah, I need to find the name real fast. Well, I put in 2019 Lesbian Ballet movie. Got a lot of uh, things I should probably have had to say Sir John for. <laughs> well, I can't find it. Fuck it. It's gone forever. No big deal. <laughs> There's a movie about like, like rival ballet girls who wind up like falling in love and cu- cutting their uh, enemies' hands off. It's great. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, cutting each other's hands off. It's the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> it's romantic. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> One thing I'm kind of sad about, while, while we're talking about things that could have been, I'm slightly sad that when Gloria and Oscar go to the playground, we get giant monsters in Seoul. I'm kind of sad that when Anne Hathaway, who has gone to Seoul and creates a giant monster in the playground, it doesn't create an even bigger Anne Hathaway in Seoul. <laughs> <laughs> a proportionally size to the monster Anne Hathaway. <laughs> See, I think that, that would get a little ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it also created a feedback loop whereby you would have just... 
<laughs> infinitely larger monsters than Anne Hathaway's. Yeah. And the fact that we didn't get that already with them just in the playground. Right. I know deep down yeah. that that is not how the curse or whatever works. <laughs> I still just want an Anne Hathaway the size of the sun. Also, I guess for the movie to work, and Hathaway needs to stay anonymous, not have her, I guess, come out from under the bed. What do you... <laughs> what's the term for coming out as a monster? <laughs> I do think out from under the bed is, is very good. Cool, I'll take it. I'm so mad that Closet Monster's not on Netflix anymore. I mean, like, I guess you could go, like, out of the coffin, out of the crypt. Yeah. But out of the coffin is taken. <laughs> so is out of the doghouse. That's you come out as a furry. Anyways, <laughs> um, the thing I think I like a lot about Colossal is how very well woven the kind of two plots are. Like, there's the monster plot and the glory abuse plot. Mm-hmm. And it'd be really easier to have kind of, like, jumping back and forth between the two. But mm-hmm. not only do we have a good flow between them, but scenes where Gloria will react to the monster will then lead into conversations about her addiction and abuse and all that jazz and then those conversations will lead back into monster stuff later on it interweaves in a very fluid way well yeah because of how much the monster stuff is weighing on Gloria it makes sense that that would affect the relationships he has going on and letting down her defenses because she needs support Mm mm-hmm yeah, I, I do think that it would have been very easy to just have two very separate plots, but the way they weave things together is very interesting. Yeah. I'm specifically thinking of the scene when Gloria first finds out about the monster, she's kind of in shock, and uh, she calls Tim, and Tim comments on the fact that she's now waking up at like 4 p.m. or whatever. Hi. Did I wake you up? No, it's okay. What's up? I just, I just want to talk to you. I, I just woke up, and um, I thought you'd be on your way to work, so I wanted to... Gloria, Gloria, you're drunk. I'm not talking to you when you're drunk. I'm not drunk. I'm talking to you. It shifts her from her shock about the monster to the kind of petty bullshit drama that she has been on, and it's a very effectively written scene to, to have that those emotions not go bip to blop. Mm. I'm everyone knows exactly what I mean, and I don't need to elaborate on it at all. <laughs> Speaking of Tim, though, I do think it's very interesting how the film keeps reincorporating him into the plot and Mm -hmm. into Gloria's life. Because I think it would have been incredibly easy for him to be in those first few scenes and then just gone. Mm -hmm. But by bringing him back, it's allowing us to compare and contrast him with Oscar. And at the beginning, we're seeing Tim in a bad light compared to ask like especially with the phone call scene like you just said where he is very judgmental of what's going on with gloria even though she's like very shaken by this and needs support Mm -hmm. and you know oscar of course steps in because gloria is vulnerable but later on when then tim comes to visit and the scenes in the bar they're placed on much more equal footing there are some shitty things that Tim does, specifically the way that he is talking about the work that Glory is doing in the bar mm-hmm. and how beneath both of them it feels to him. Mm-hmm. But by that point, Oscar has also completely gone without the mask and during that scene lights his bar on fire to prove a point. Mm-hmm. What an amazingly written scene. Like, he gets a great monologue there. We don't really get great monologues in things that often. And I'm like, hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. This is actually the most illegal thing in this bar. Up until recently, the boys and I, we'd hop in the pickup, we'd get a big bag of fireworks, and then we'd drive out to the suburbs. 
We'd light them all up, you know, scare the shit out of the locals. But this, this firecracker, the biggest one we ever had, never made the trip. And our friend here found its way to the shelf back there, and it waited year after year for its big moment. Joe, you might want to get out of the way. No, 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 no. Oscar. Oscar. What are you doing? What, what, what are you doing? It works as a monologue because everyone's just so in shock. Like, what the fuck is he doing? Mm -hmm. Man, that scene is really. I would. I would teach that scene in classes if I had to do a film class. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been really easy to have Tim Trance be a nice guy. He's great, and mm -hmm. they reconcile. And, and I like that. Nope. I don't think she like completely cuts him out out of her life or anything, but she definitely acknowledges that he's been shitty to her too. Mm -hmm. I think they're both bad for each other. They're both not great in their own ways, but I'm glad that she realized that his handling of things has been less than ideal. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that the film uses Oscar and Tim and compares their relationships to Gloria is one of the reasons that I'm frustrated with how the film deals with Jonah. Because mm -hmm. he doesn't get the same amount of depth. Yeah. I really feel like there must have been like a scene or two or something in the script or whatever that got cut for time or mm -hmm. that like just kind of rounded him out. Because mm -hmm. he's just there. He doesn't have a whole lot going on other than being into Gloria. Mm -hmm. If he was, I don't know, had decided to give up on getting to art school and now he's applying again or whatever, something, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just some tiny little arc. Mm hmm. So, Mr. Galando, if you're listening, please tell us. What the fuck is up with that guy? What's what's the story? Where's the Jonah spinoff movie? I think a Jonah spinoff movie is a terrible idea. I don't think that character has enough depth to do anything interesting there. Absolutely not. But, you know, the movie doesn't have a sequel. I'm sorry. I keep doing this. You can't just keep stealth pitching Equalizers episodes to them via our podcast. Uh, I can't really make you fucking watch Oz Great and Powerful. <laughs> uh, but also... <laughs> Equalizers, thank you for the shout-out that happened last week. Or whenever. Time is fake. Recording sessions are whack. Mm -hmm. Speaking of characters having things to do, very minor thing. I appreciate that there's a bit where there's some kind of just, like, assumed gender dynamics things happening where Gabe tells... Okay, okay. Jason, give me the bat. What bat? The baseball bat. The bat. There's one in the corner. Here, here. Thank you. And then instead Zora runs off and grabs it. It's a very minor thing, but I'm like, yeah, that would happen. That seems about right for where these characters are with stuff. Mm -hmm. Honestly, give Zora more to do. She's fun, but she's kind of out of the movie in the third act. She's there, but she's not like an active presence as much as uh, some of the others are. Yeah, and I think you could say similar things for Jason. The The way he deals with Pluto, that scene is slowed down, so it kind of highlights it a bit. And so you know that it's important. And then he gets kidnapped, which is kind of the impetus for the Adelaide Red showdown. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Zora kind of gets the short end of the stick on that. And I honestly think that the actress for Zora is more compelling than Jason's was. Mm -hmm. But also I guess that they kind of need to have a conversation between Red and Adelaide that wouldn't be interrupted. And I feel like Zora would have thoughts the whole <laughs> way through. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, Mr. Peel, if you're listening, get at us. Why don't we have the uh, the Zora cut where she just makes snarky commentaries with the whole bit? Honestly, I'm not sure if I would be honored or embarrassed if any directors listen to our takes on their films. I mean, listen, I welcome any of them having thoughts on what we have to say. If they want to have counterpoints, if they want to bring up, oh, well, here's why we made this choice. That is welcome. That sounds great. Especially Mr. Del Toro. As we've said before, this can always be a Del Toro cast. <laughs> I think I'm out of things to, to say for stuff. I mean, we, we have been talking for quite a while. I think it's totally fine for us to start moving into our end segments. Yeah. So 
because both these movies happen on a big global scale, unlike a lot of horror movies, which are often more about like small things happening to people in isolated areas, mm-hmm. generally, these movies have things that are happening across the wide news. So the Hands Across America line from Out of the Sewers and the very stressful Fortnite in Seoul. So my question is, what do you think is going to cause more societal change in the world that follows these movies? Hmm. Like with Colossal, yes, we, we get giant kaiju. But by the end of the film... One of them is gone. And one of them probably isn't going to go back ever. Yeah, like, Gloria seems to be moving on with her life. And there's also the fact that it's only for five minutes in this very small geographic area. (laughs) It is incredibly easy for her to just not go there. Yeah. Which I've talked about before. Like, okay, she, she knows that she's the monster. She could just not go there. And then we have the complication with Oscar. So I think it's very easy for people to just kind of move on from this without it affecting society too much. Mm-hmm. Whereas in us, like we have thousands, possibly millions of people murdered and replaced. Mm-hmm. The population of the U.S. grows by approximately 300 million and then shrinks by quite a bit after mm-hmm. that. So. A lot of people are either going to have to establish a new government or be integrated into the society one way or another. Integrating those people into society is going to be difficult because of the communication barrier, because they committed these terrible acts of violence to get there. Mm-hmm. It's going to be weird. So I definitely think that there's going to be much bigger societal shifts due to the events of us as compared to the events of Colossal. And because horror is often, and especially in these cases, about real societal issues, I think examining the societal impact of these movies is important. But yeah, I think that us definitely has more of a societal impact in its world and also in ours a little bit. To be fair, I think in general, us is starting from a premise that it just has more wide-ranging social impact, like the class divide and the inequality, as compared to Colossal, which is much more dealing with a very personal struggle for Gloria Mm -hmm. um, and a interpersonal struggle between Oscar and Gloria. And it does attempt to highlight how there's a problem with how we think about those issues and that they're much more far-reaching than most people initially assume. But even then, I don't think those have nearly the same impact as the starting premise in Us. Us kind of has an inherent advantage of that. Yeah. I think Us also offers slightly more of a way forward to change society. Mm-hmm. I think that you know, even if we create a, ut- a utopian world where there is no more class and, e- and economic oppression, there will probably still be instances of emotional abuse and manipulation. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, flinging your opponent into the sun isn't always going to be an option for people dealing with abuse. Much as we wish. Yes. But speaking of dealing with each other's problems, what would happen if you switched the protagonists? How would Anne Hathaway react to her doppelganger showing up? How would Adelaide react to being a kaiju? So I think Adelaide is probably going to have a pretty similar reaction to the whole kaiju thing that Gloria did. Mm -hmm. But I'm not entirely sure that Adelaide would have ended up back in her hometown to begin with. I don't see her having that huge falling out with Tim that Gloria did because... While Adelaide definitely has some baggage and PTSD and doesn't always handle things super well, it's very clear that she knows how to maintain relationships, both romantic and familial. And she doesn't seem like the kind of person who would get sloppy drunk so often that becomes 
a relationship problem, mm-hmm. and therefore she probably wouldn't have been kicked out of the house in the first place. Mm-hmm. Which means pretty much none of this happened because Oscar wouldn't have discovered the playground superpower. He would mm-hmm. have just kind of continued his shitty, abusive campaign against the people around him. Mm-hmm. Which is unfortunate, but also, I guess, better for Soul. <laughs> Meanwhile, I feel like Gloria at the start of the movie would not handle having a doppelganger well at all. No. Uh, she would lose that fight. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> so I think, like, all things considered, Adelaide is going to do better in Colossal than Gloria would do in Us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That said, I assume that Oscar's doppelganger is very scary. Oof. I don't like that thought, actually. No. Hypothetically, these are happening in the same universe. Do the doppelgangers also have kaiju versions? God damn it. <laughs> Well, that is speculation we'll probably never get unless we can get both of the directors to call us and have them voice call for the... I mean, I'm pretty sure you're also just, again, stealth pitching a sequel to Colossal and Us at the same time so the Equalizers can do it. You're right. I'm so sorry. And I mean, we've already given them the title of Colossus. That's true. Anyway, our last end segment is the tried and true final girl best girl that we've been getting into. So, who more effectively solves the problem? I mean, it's gotta be Gloria. Yeah. We, we talked about how, in general, Colossal is going to have less societal impact than us is. And that's mostly because there's not really a issue after Colossal is all finished up. Gloria is moving on with her life and in a better place and Oscar is fucking gone. Mm -hmm. With the exception of the deaths and property destruction of a few blocks of soul, no one's too worse for wear. Except Oscar, who fucking deserves it. Yeah. Whereas we have no idea how much of the population of the United States is still alive or has been replaced or... What's going on with all of that? Mm-hmm. And sure, Adelaide and her family make it out alive, but... They're they... now living in a post-apocalypse movie. Yeah. More or less. Mm-hmm. They're living in the forever purge. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. So I definitely think that Gloria is our final girl, best girl. Yeah, that's fair. But what is the best movie of the two? I think we're going to go with Colossal. Yeah, I think Colossal edges it out just a smidge. I like Us a lot. I think they're both very good, obviously. But yes. I think that Colossal is... A bit more succinct of what it's trying to say and do. And Us is talking about a lot of things. It had a lot of fun moments, but there's just enough things that are, aren't quite working. With Us, the film definitely wants you to know, like, everything's a metaphor. Everything is significant. There's a lot of layers. But I think because of that, the main themes are a little obscured. Like, I know lots of people just did not get Us. Whereas I think Colossal kind of wears its themes on its sleeve and i don't think it's necessarily suffers for doing so yeah and i mean i could also see the possibility that like you know us isn't necessarily made for us so that might be part of it yeah, but, yeah and that's completely valid and fair and i'm not saying that us is a bad movie i'm just saying that i think overall i prefer colossal mm-hmm. yeah but again hair is breadth yes same with our previous episode between us and oculus mm-hmm. and same with shape of water and the sixth sense In all honesty, I think there are some fantastic films in both this bracket and the previous monster bracket. There are only a few that I would just vehemently not recommend. Yeah. Wolf. Yeah. Stepford Wives. I don't know. Like, I think a watching of Stepford Wives is fine, but I would not, like, rewatch it. That's fair. Whereas I wouldn't even bother with Wolf. Mm -hmm. I would unbother with it. (laughs) 
That ends our Bride of Monster Bracket. And that leaves Colossal as our screen queen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. And us has to go back to the sewers. That's all of like the, the heavy lifting done. We've got a few more episodes that are just going to be full of ridiculous fun bullshit. <laughs> we are planning to look at the craft, the one that's coming out in like three days ago for you, two days for us. It is possible it will be very bad and we won't even bother. So that might not happen, but if, if all goes as planned, next week you will be listening to The Craft. Mm-hmm. To legacy ghosts of whatever. Yeah. But if that doesn't happen, you can expect an episode on Ready or Not and The Babysitter, both starring Samara Weaving. Our Samara Weaving Power Hour. Uh, and then after that, we wanted to look at Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You, which mm-hmm. are just... A lot of fun. Yeah. So you can expect between two and three more uh, scary movie episodes. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to take it a little bit slower for the rest of the year because holidays are coming up. And that won't really affect our schedules this year, sadly. But, you know. We, we deserve a break. <laughs> yes. But we do have a another holiday episode planned. And uh, if you do have not get caught last year's on Klaus, I highly recommend both watching that film and also listening to that episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't watch Klaus for another... Two days from when you're listening to this, because uh, it's not Christmas time yet. We're, we don't start Christmas till after Halloween. Yes, but preferably after Thanksgiving. But that only applies to those of you in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Those of you less beset by colonialism, feel free to to keep the spirit alive for two whole months. <laughs> Either way, to make sure you catch up with whatever we wind up doing, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.